You're listening to Biblical Proportions. Our website is www.biblicalproportionspodcast.com. This is Biblical Proportions with Griffin Johnson. This is part two in a two-part series on Genesis chapter 6, The Sons of God. If you missed part one, I strongly recommend you go back and listen to it now before starting part two. Nevertheless, I will give a bit of a summary at the beginning to catch folks up in case you don't remember from part one on where we are at this point in the story. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy part two. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. This is the passage which provides us with the story that we're dealing with in these two episodes. To refresh your memory from last time, we said that what's really going on here, you know, without going into all of the arguments and details of why this is the correct view. But what's really going on here is these sons of God are actually angelic or heavenly beings that came to earth, procreated with human women, and bore a hybrid offspring called Nephilim, who just so happened to be giants. We discussed how all of these other ancient civilizations have a very similar story to this one. And we also looked at some passages from First Enoch, that Jewish text written in between the Old and New Testaments that gives probably the most detail out there on this event from Genesis chapter 6. We read about how these angels that came down were called watchers, The Watchers not only confused the boundaries of the created order, but also taught divine secrets to human beings. Things like magic or sorcery or warfare, astrology, even things like cosmetics. Of course, in the ancient Jewish mind, including that of the New Testament writers, This great sin committed by the Watchers, which Genesis chapter 6 is referencing, played just as big a role as why the world was in such a mess, as did the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. Before we go any farther, we should probably talk about this angelic realm, or heavenly realm, spiritual realm, whatever you want to call it. These sons of God creatures, what we have called or identified as angels, are probably what we think of as angels. Though we're probably calling this group by the wrong name, we tend to use, as 21st century Christians, this word angel to describe any spiritual being, or at least any good spiritual being. But 
The word angel is an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word angelos, and all that this word means is messenger. Its Old Testament Hebrew equivalent is the word malach, which which also means messenger. So the word angel is simply a, a title or a job description. I think we see clearly in the Bible that the spiritual world and all of the beings inhabiting it are quite varied. We have things like seraphim, cherubim in the uh, uh, Old Testament. We have all of the creatures that John is picturing in the book of Revelation. Maybe a decent way to think about this is that angels or, or messengers are perhaps just a subgroup in the larger group of heavenly beings. Angels, maybe you could think of it as them performing the grunt work, the lower level beings. I think there's clearly a hierarchy. I think anyone that reads through scripture with an eye towards this spiritual realm can see that there is a hierarchy. So maybe it's best to speak of uh, these beings or this realm as a whole, not as angels, not as an angelic realm. Um, I like to use the word heavenly realm or heavenly beings in a general sense. And the Bible makes it clear that these heavenly beings were with God before the creation of our world. Job 38, 4-7 says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. There's that phrase again, sons of God. Morning stars is another term that you will see throughout the Old Testament. And I've heard this term, morning stars, used in more nefarious ways by some people, trying to claim that uh, maybe it refers to Satan. Morning stars is used a few different times in the Old Testament, simply referring to these heavenly beings, another word for the heavenly beings. So it's clear from Job 38, these guys were there with God when the world was created. The term angels is the most common term that we use today because in the Jewish world around the time that Greek society and culture was at its height, this word angels became sort of the catch-all term to speak of any being in this heavenly realm. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates the word we've mentioned earlier, b'nai ha-elohim, in Genesis chapter 6, that means the sons of God, the Septuagint writers translated that as simply angels. And it is pretty clear that in the ancient world that surrounded the Israelites, the phrase sons of God was used to describe heavenly beings that were of a higher rank or had higher levels of responsibility than simple messenger angels. But what I think that we find in Genesis chapter 6 with these sons of God, we've called them by different names like the Watchers, the Bnei Ha Elohim, I think that we see some of the highest ranking members of the heavenly realm deciding to commit this awful sin. 
I think an obvious question is to ask, was Satan a part of this group? Or, or was Satan responsible? That's not a question we have an answer to, but it is worth looking into the origins of Satan, what we can know about his origins anyway, which is not much. And the word Satan is interesting. I say word and not name because it isn't a name. It isn't a proper name in the Hebrew language. It's a word that means adversary or prosecutor or challenger. And it appears to be an official legal function in the heavenly realm. You know, different heavenly beings have different jobs. We've mentioned angels before, the messengers of God that always appear or show up in order to deliver a message. But this word Satan speaks of a different job. In Job chapter 1, we find a very interesting passage that has this word Satan in it. I think it's often misunderstood. And it is this scene in the beginning of the story of Job where some heavenly beings come and present themselves before God. And in verse 6 of Job 1, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, there's that phrase again, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. Now, if this passage was translated literally from the Hebrew, it would say, And the prosecutor or the challenger also came among the sons of God. I think it's possible, and Dr. Heiser makes this point, that the Satan in Job chapter 1 isn't referring to the creature that we think of as the devil at all. Simply, it's one of these heavenly positions, the prosecutor, who is simply doing his God-given job of prosecuting or challenging. or. And when he says in chapter 1 that he has been going to and fro on the face of the earth, he's simply performing his heavenly duty. Notice that if you read this with a clean slate, you know, I and probably a lot of Christians have just sort of read this passage with this preconceived notion that this is the devil. But if you read it without that preconception, you might notice that the Satan figure in this passage doesn't necessarily appear evil. And I've always wondered, well, what is the devil doing in the presence of God in the first place? And it doesn't even say that this Satan figure is the one that's responsible for all the bad things that are happening to Job. Maybe he's just one of the members of these sons of God that happens to be coming before God in this passage. At any rate, this is the take that Dr. Heiser and a few other scholars have on Job and on the origins of um, this word Satan, I'm not sure if it's correct or not. It makes a lot of sense to me, though. But by the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament, the word Satan became the name that was attributed to the character that we know today as the devil. And the devil, now widely known by the term Satan, became seen as the primary leader of all of the other rebellious heavenly beings. You also have these creatures called demons. What are we supposed to do with them? We see plenty of demonic possession in the New Testament. 
You have Paul making statements like, people that worship false gods are really worshiping demons. I've always wondered where demons figure into the overall spiritual realm hierarchy. I mean, are these the same things as fallen angels? Are they the same things as these watcher figures from Genesis chapter 6 and the Enoch story? But in the ancient Jewish world, demons were typically thought of as a spirit of a person who had died. Maybe, you know, what we would think of as a ghost today. And by the intertestamental period, and certainly in the world of the New Testament, the demons were thought to have been the spirits of the dead Nephilim from chapter 6 of Genesis. And in this period of time, they believed that evil persisted after the flood because the dead Nephilim spirits had turned into demons. And this is why they always were looking to possess people, because they didn't have their Nephilim bodies anymore. They were dead. They were disembodied spirits. There's a quote from First Enoch, chapter 16, verse 1, that talks about this very idea. And it says, quote, From the day of the slaughter and destruction and death of the giants, from the soul of whose flesh the spirits are proceeding, they are making desolate without judgment. Thus, they will make desolate until the day of the consummation of the great judgment, when the great age will be consummated. It will be consummated all at once. End quote. So there's this idea that the Nephilim offspring from the Watchers and the human women, once they died or started being killed off, their spirits lived on as the demons that we see, the very demons we see Jesus casting out in the New Testament. And I think it's important to note, or at least to clarify, I'm not sure if all of this is true, and, and the Bible doesn't necessarily speak to whether or not these demons did come from the Nephilim, but the ancient Jews certainly did think this was the case. Now, all of this probably just serves to confuse the issue. The subject of the heavenly realm can be anything but simple. At any rate, one problem that maybe has come to your mind, certainly to the mind of a lot of scholars and people that are trying to understand what's going on in Genesis chapter 6 and throughout the rest of the Bible where these Nephilim, the hybrid offspring of the watchers and the women, pop up over and over again, is if the flood happened primarily because of the shenanigans by the watchers in Genesis chapter 6, hypothetically fixing the problem, then why do we see these Nephilim creatures after the flood? And why is it that New Testament Jews, that is, Jews that were living around the same time that Jesus was walking the earth, why is it that they attribute the evil found in their present world to the sin of these watchers? If, in fact, the flood wiped them out, and if, in fact, the flood fixed the problem that was caused by these watchers. And I haven't found a satisfactory answer to this. If you were paying close attention to the actual passage in Genesis 6, it says in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. The afterward is, is clearly referencing the flood since this story 
is part of the larger flood narrative in Genesis. So if the flood was supposed to wipe out these creatures, why are they there after the flood? Some scholars propose that they're there after the flood because the flood wasn't global. It was only a local flood, so some of the Nephilim may have survived. I don't think I buy this for a number of reasons. One, because I think the biblical account is pretty clear that the flood was global. I mean, you can find scientists on both sides of the debate that will try to tell you that they have found scientific or geological evidence for either a global flood or lack of evidence for a global flood. Another reason why I'm not a fan of this local flood theory in terms of explaining why there are still Nephilim there after it is because if the flood was supposed to um, sort of be God's solution to the problem of, uh, of the Watchers and their Nephilim offspring, well, God didn't do a very good job solving the problem if there are still some left afterwards. I would imagine if God sets out to fix a problem, he can fix it just fine. I think, though, maybe it's not a satisfactory answer. I think what probably has happened is the event from Genesis chapter 6 of the Watchers coming down and procreating with women probably happened again after the flood, producing more Nephilim and more evil. So, these Nephilim figures are going to make appearances throughout the Old Testament. And maybe the first place that they show up is pretty soon after the flood. In Genesis chapter 10, we read of a character named Nimrod. You've probably all heard of him before. We don't know much about him, but the description of this guy is pretty telling. Remember, Nimrod was the man that, right after the flood happens, starts going around Mesopotamia, building a bunch of cities. He's also linked, possibly linked anyway, to the Tower of Babel. In verse 8, it says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. That phrase, mighty man, where have we heard it before? Yes, in our primary passage in Genesis chapter 6. This Hebrew word is gibor, which means mighty man. In chapter 6, the word is giborim. Remember, that makes it plural, mighty men. And in Genesis 6, the giborim, the mighty men, were the Nephilim, the giants. It is possible that Nimrod was one of these guys. And the writer of Genesis, I've said before, I believe, that Moses wrote most of the first five books of the Bible, certainly slips this descriptive phrase in for a reason. I think he wants the reader to make the connection. Why else would he slip this phrase in that had just been written about the Nephilim a few chapters earlier? While the debate is far from settled, I do think it's possible to see Nimrod as one of these Nephilim guys. And the idea that you get of him in Genesis is pretty negative. He's not seen in a positive light. Neither were the Nephilim. So maybe the infamous Nimrod was one of them. And if this is the case, then the sin committed by the Watchers both before and apparently after the Flood seems like it happened pretty quickly 
after the flood waters have subsided. It's going to be a little while in terms of the Old Testament story before the Nephilim show up again. But after God rescues the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, if you'll recall, the Israelites have to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness before they're able to go into the land that God has promised them. They have to spend 40 years in the wilderness because of what happens as a result of a spy mission sent into the land to check it out before they go in to take it. We referenced this passage in the first part of this episode, but in Numbers chapter 13, after the spies come back from the land of Canaan, that land God had promised the Israelites, they give a report. The report that they give says, And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So, at some point in time after the flood, these Nephilim have come into the land that God is promising the Israelites and populated it. And it's these Nephilim descendants that are going to end up being Israel's primary opponents as they go into the promised land. Some of these names might sound familiar if you remember the conquest story. You have people like Sihon, the king of the Amorites, or Og, king of Bashan, both of whom are described as giants. In fact, Amos chapter 2 verse 9 says, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, speaking of the conquest of the Israelites into the promised land, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his root beneath. Also it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you for forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. Sihon, one of the first kings conquered by the Israelites as they go in to conquer the land, is one of these Amorite guys. Then we have Og, the king of Bashan. He's described as this really interesting group of people called the Rephaim. And Og was probably the most famous, in biblical terms anyway, the most famous of these Rephaim. He's also said to be the last of the Rephaim. Now, this word Rephaim is, is an interesting one. It, they may have just been uh, a tribe, a subgroup of the Nephilim. Think of Nephilim as sort of an umbrella term. You have tribes like the Rephaim, the Anakim, maybe even the Amorites, who we've mentioned, though that was a confusing group of people. And the word Rephaim actually means dead ones. And it's used in some different ways in the Old Testament. Obviously, Og is referred to as one of these people, as the last of this tribe of people. The term Rephaim seems to refer both to a living ethnic group of people and spirits in the underworld. Other places it seems to be used to describe all of the departed spirits. Still, at other times in the Old Testament, it almost seems to refer to a select group of spirits in the underworld. Clarity is hard to come by on this subject, but I think it's possible that this word ends up becoming applied to beings in the realm of the dead since the Rephaim tribe themselves had such an otherworldly terrifying persona about them. 
There are 10 different references in the Old Testament to a place called the Valley of the Rephaim. This was a place that was adjacent to another valley called the Valley of Hinnom. The Hebrew phrase for the Valley of Hinnom was Gehinnom. That term should sound familiar to you because it's mentioned in the Gospels and it becomes associated with hell or the land of the dead. And it's also a place where child sacrifices happened in the Old Testament. So certainly, this word Rephaim has some pretty negative connotations, but it starts by being a term for one of the tribes of these Nephilim descendants. Nevertheless, as the Israelites go in to conquer the land promised to them by God, they find it populated with these giants. Now, it's not altogether clear if all of the inhabitants in the land were Nephilim offspring, but certainly a good number of them were. And it's because of this that the conquest of Canaan really must be looked at in supernatural terms. The Israelites are entering into a supernatural war against the forces of evil as they go in to conquer Canaan. You know, one of the complaints that I hear the most from people that aren't Christians or have a difficult time believing in God goes something like this. They'll say, well, look at the God of the Old Testament, and they'll reference the conquest narrative and God's command to utterly wipe out the inhabitants of the land. And they wonder, how can you follow a God like that, a God that seems so wrathful, a God that commands genocide? And I have to be honest and say, I understand their complaint. If I wasn't a believer, I think I could see the trouble in this. Well, what if this is no ordinary conquest? What if God's given these commands because he knows what they're going into face? These are hybrid beings that, just like in the flood, need to be wiped off the face of the earth. At least in my mind, it tends to make a little bit more sense why God would call for the complete extermination of some of these people. The Hebrew word kerem is used a few different times during this conquest account. For example, when they were about to destroy the city of Jericho, it says in Joshua 6, 17, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. That term there is our word kerem. Fascinatingly enough, this term to devote for destruction, it's only used when the Israelites are attacking a place that has a known connection to these Nephilim descendants, like the Anakim or the Rephaim. Once again, this is a supernatural conquest over the forces of evil, not just your regular run-of-the-mill war. Of course, if you remember the rest of the story, the Israelites finish the conquest, they come into the land and take possession of their inheritance, but they don't quite finish the job. Joshua 11.22 says, There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. So, in other words, they left some of these Nephilim there. They didn't get all of them. Of course, Gaza and Gath and Ashdod were Philistine cities, and the Philistines would go on to become the perpetual enemy of Israel during the United Kingdom. And not only that, but Goliath, 
would also come from one of those cities, Gath. He, of course, is most famous for being a giant. I also can't help but find it quite ironic that after their wars with the giants, when the Israelites finally decide they want a king, the first one they elect is Saul, who is noted for his height. Maybe they are still attributing great power to great height. After all, it was these Nephilim giants that had so terrified them in the beginning. Now, I always wonder the obvious question. If these giants were living in the land of Canaan back then, shouldn't we be able to find the bones of them, some sort of evidence that they were there? Currently, there really is no reliable evidence of giant human bones found in this um, Syria-Palestine area. But it is also true that the people of this area didn't practice embalming like the Egyptians did. So, there really aren't a lot of human remains in that area at all that date back to this period. However, outside of the Bible, there is an ancient Egyptian text that speaks of very tall people from the land of Canaan. So, I suppose there's at least some piece of evidence outside of the Bible that giants existed in this land. You may be familiar with different people, and there are all sorts of these folks that go around trying to prove different legends true, such as the uh, Giants legend that maybe we're discovering isn't so much of a legend after all. But uh, there's one guy in particular, a guy named Steve Quayle. He's got books on giants and claims to have collected evidence that these giants existed all over the world, not just in the land of Canaan, but all over from Europe and even into America. I'm not sure how much of that is true, but it is worth noting there are these giant hunters out there who do claim to have found evidence, including bones. So take that for what you will. I have no idea if any of that is accurate or not. But if that were all there were to this Watchers and Nephilim story, then we might could consider it just a strange footnote in the Old Testament story. But that isn't it at all. We are going to find that this story, particularly the aftermath of the story, and God's mission to clean up the aftermath once and for all, is going to make its way into the New Testament. It's important to remember something we've said a couple of times already, that the Jews living in the time period between the Old and New Testament, and even in the, the time period that the gospel stories take place in, these Jews understood that the world was the way that it was, full of evil and all, not only because of the sin committed by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but also because of the great sin committed by the Watchers in Genesis chapter 6 and their offspring, the Nephilim. Something had to be done about the sin of the Watchers and the Nephilim. If you remember from the story, not only did they cross boundaries of the created order by having relations with human women, but they also taught men and women things that, I guess you could say, they weren't supposed to know. Sorcery, warfare, things of that nature. So not only does Adam's introduction of sin into the human race need to be taken care of by Jesus, but the effects of the sin of the watchers needs to be dealt with as well. 
And I think what we find in some of the gospel stories is this mission sort of underlining the narrative in some interesting ways. Now, as Christians, we understand quite well that Jesus' mission on earth, among other things, was to die for our sins on the cross, to reverse what happened in the Garden of Eden and give us a way to be reconciled back to God. But I think what we also miss is the other part of this story that Jesus is setting up a kingdom that will reverse the effects of the sin of the Watchers. It is an important part of his mission. There are some interesting behind-the-scenes ways that this narrative plays itself out in the New Testament. A woman named Amy Richter in a Ph.D. dissertation has done an interesting study on Jesus' genealogy in Matthew and his birth that shows some of the ways that Jesus is going to telegraph this imagery of overthrowing and reversing the sin of the Watchers. From her dissertation, she writes, quote, In the birth narrative, Matthew shows the birth of Jesus, occurring in a way that reverses the Watcher's transgression and evil in the world as it occurs in the Enochic template. Specifically, the birth of Jesus occurs through the union of a woman and a celestial being. But in contrast to the Watcher's story, no sexual relations are involved. Further, in Matthew's narrative, the first humans outside of Jesus' immediate family to interact with the child Jesus are the Magi, who are practitioners of the illicit arts taught by the Watchers and use astrological knowledge to find Jesus. In the Enochic template, the Watchers bring idolatry into the world. In Matthew, the Magi worship the appropriate object of worship, Jesus. End quote. So, Jesus, in the story of his birth, is pictured as a person who's going to reverse some of the effects of the evil of the sin of the Watchers. One of the aspects of the story of the Watchers from Genesis 6 that we haven't spent a lot of time on is the location of the events. The book of Enoch says that these Watchers first came down on Mount Hermon. And I think in Hebrew, it's actually pronounced Mount Hermon. I think it'll be easier on our English-speaking ears if I just call it Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is located just to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee, sort of straddling what is today the Syrian and Lebanese border. And this Mount Hermon, not just in the book of Enoch, but really by all of the people living in that area in ancient times, was thought to be a sacred or divine mountain. Perhaps that could have something to do with the watchers apparently coming down on it. And it's just to the south of where Mount Hermon is located, on the east side of the Jordan River, that the Nephilim tribes were conquered by the Israelites as they're going into the Promised Land. So there's a whole geographic region just sort of east and northeast of what we think of as present-day Israel that is tied up in all of this spiritual evil associated with the Watchers. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus makes his famous Gates of Hell statement. Peter has just made his famous confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in verse 17... 
Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The location that this statement is made in is pretty important. Jesus has just taken his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, just at the southwest base of Mount Hermon. And it was quite literally an area known in the ancient times as the Gate of Hell because of the spiritual significance, not just from the events that happened on Mount Hermon, but from other things that this area held. It was also, at one point in time, an area that was heavily populated with the Nephilim. So he is making this statement about the gates of hell not prevailing against his church in a place where his disciples, being first century Jews, certainly would have picked up on the symbolism of the great sin and the evil of the heavenly beings. This, to quote Dr. Heiser, was ground zero in terms of biblical demonic geography. And I take it that his disciples would have understood that Jesus was saying that the church that he was creating would prevail over even the spiritual forces of evil that were associated with the very place he was making the statement in. Though we, as 21st century Christians, miss the symbolism and the connection to the event in Genesis 6, first century Jews listening to that statement or reading about it certainly would not have missed it. Soon after this gates of hell statement is made by Jesus, the famous scene of the transfiguration takes place. Jesus takes a few of his disciples up on a tall mountain. Traditionally, people have believed that mountain to be Mount Nebo. Though knowing geographically that Jesus and his disciples were just at Caesarea Philippi, it makes sense that the transfiguration would have happened on Mount Hermon. So when this event takes place in such a geographically and spiritually important location in the Jewish mind, it's almost as if Jesus is marking or reclaiming territory. He's claiming that the kingdom of God that he's establishing is here, and it will be victorious over the powers of evil, even evil at such a level as what happened right there on Mount Hermon. So I think that Jesus' disciples knew, and so we ought to as well, that he was there to make right all things in the world, not only reversing the sin of Adam, but also the effects of the sin of the Watchers from Genesis chapter 6. And it's not only in the Gospels or in the letters of Peter and Jude that we looked at earlier that this story shows up in some way, but also in the writings of Paul. One particular example is a passage that has confused Bible interpreters for a long time. Most of us have probably wondered what to do with Paul's passage in 1 Corinthians 11 that claims that women should wear head coverings during the worship gathering. Clearly, at least for most Christians today, this is not something that's still practice. But Paul adds an interesting 
addendum toward the end of his exhortation for women to wear head coverings. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10, Paul says, That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Why on earth would women need to wear head coverings because of angels? There is a very interesting scholarly article written by Dr. Troy Martin where he looks at some of the Greek medical practices from the first century, even citing Greek physicians such as Hippocrates, you know, the one from whom we get the Hippocratic Oath that doctors have to swear before taking their position. And Dr. Martin discovers that And by the way, hang with me here because this podcast is about to get not only a lot more weird, but shall we say, not G-rated anymore. But Dr. Martin learned that the prevailing medical wisdom in the Greek world in the first century was that a crucial role that women's long hair played was in the reproductive process. And by the way, here's where we move from G to R-rated. Apparently, they believed that hair, being hollow as it is, helps to soak up and pull semen into the body, making a woman fertile. And because a woman's hair was seen as playing a vital role in the reproductive process, in their minds, it was most likely what we would think of as a private part, not appropriate to be exposed when you are in the presence of God in a worship service. In fact, Dr. Martin shows in his article how the female hair was seen almost as the counterpart to the male testicles. So it could be that what Paul is saying is that obviously, just as a male shouldn't be exposing his private parts in a worship gathering, then a woman shouldn't either. Dr. Heiser sums all of this up when he says, Paul wanted women to have their hair covered as a sign that they were sexually taken, that they belonged to a man, their husbands. Why? Because of the angels. Apparently, Paul was concerned that if women didn't show this sign of sexual fidelity and, quote, ownership, a woman could be at risk of sexual violation by angels. After all, it had happened before in Genesis 6, 1-4. Paul didn't want to see such a violation of cosmic order happen again. End quote. So it is possible that as Paul writes this strange exhortation, that he has the sin of the watchers from Genesis chapter 6 in mind. And it kind of helps to shed some light on why he would add that in. Women, cover your heads because of the angels. And of course, this is new information to us because we don't have this story of the sin of the watchers in our minds. We're not familiar with it. But remember, the Jews in the first century, and Paul is one of them, knew this story well. It was one of the big reasons why the world was the way that it was. So it sort of makes sense for Paul to see women as needing to wear hair coverings because of this incident in Genesis 6. And lest you think that this view about 
why Paul writes about hair covering in 1 Corinthians 11 is somehow out in left field. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, also suggested that the sin of the watchers was behind Paul's demand about head coverings. I hope by now that this has made at least some sense, and if nothing else, been interesting to listen to, and that you'll be able to see the reason why the first century Jews, including the writers of the New Testament, thought the world was as evil as it was, and to see that Jesus came certainly to provide a way for forgiveness of our sins, the sin that originated with Adam, but also to set up his kingdom, a kingdom that would conquer over and reverse the effects of the watchers that came down in Genesis chapter 6 on Mount Hermon and created their giant offspring, the Nephilim, and also taught forbidden knowledge and evils to humanity. Perhaps this discussion will cause you to read your Bible with fresh eyes, because as I have always believed, the Bible is anything but boring. Thanks for listening to Biblical Proportions. If you haven't already, go ahead and click subscribe on the podcast and download the episodes because that helps us know who's listening. Also, make sure you go to our website, www.biblicalproportionspodcast.com to check out the sources used for each episode under the Sources tab. Finally, if you think what we're doing here is worthwhile, then we sure would appreciate your support. On the website, there's a place where you can give your support to what we're doing at Biblical Proportions and assist us in continuing to put out content like what you just listened to. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.